Please turn to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 8 this morning. Tremper Longman III is a noted theologian. He wrote the NIV application commentary on Daniel. And he told the following in the first person. He said, Daniel is not the only apocalyptic book that contains calendared numbers that are easy to misunderstand. Most notable is the controversial reference in Revelation 23 to the thousand-year binding of Satan. Longman wrote, The debate over this passage has caused debate among sincere Christians for many years. Is it to be understood as a literal millennium to begin at some date in the future, or is it a symbolic number standing for the period of time between the first and second coming of Christ? These two camps are commonly known as amillennial and premillennial. Our comments will have ramifications for that debate. Though it will not address it directly, this is not Revelation chapter 20. Our concern here, and our concern here, is to inquire what effect Daniel's chronological statements are supposed to have on us living here, now. Are they pointers to the date of the return of Christ? Or do they, do, do they intend to communicate another message to us? Long we made comment about the date setting of the return that I can't state any better. I'll just share it with you. It's a rather lengthy story, but I personally remember it because I was a teenager when these events took place. He writes, it's important to address this issue at the present time. He was writing about 25 years ago. Because the press is filled with reports that apocalyptic speculation is on the rise because of the shift of the millennium. I was thinking about Y2K. Some of you young folks in here can't relate with that. For the rest of us, we remember all the computer stories and what's going to happen with the economy and world affairs at Y2K. Much debate, right? In the 1990s, there's a lot of debate about this. Further, he noted, being a bit of a sociologist of the time and reporting what was going on, the church is constantly bombarded with claims that someone has finally figured it out figured out the difficult apocalyptic number that has determined that we are going, that we are living in the period of the end. We often hear there's only a limited amount of time before Christ returns and history will come to a dramatic end, which is usually characterized as a period of violence. And of course, some of that is quite true. In the early 1994, Longman debated Harold Camping of Family Radio. Harold Camping had faithfully been teaching the Bible, according to Longman, I assume he's right, had been faithfully teaching the Bible virtually every night for the past 30 years. He had built up a faithful following over those years by offering biblical teaching on many important theological and practical issues. While his teaching could be characterized perhaps as dogmatic on certain controversial issues, he did not have a reputation for being sensational. He was quite respected. He was an advocate of Reformed theological positions, for which that school of thought usually emanated rather reserved teachings about the end times. So when he, per when he published a book in 1993 in which he claimed to be able to unseal 
to think about Daniel 8.26 language we'll read in a minute, to unseal the apocalyptic teaching about the time of the return of Christ, it generated a furor in churches not used to such speculation. At the time, Lawman was teaching a seminar on how to interpret prophecy at Westminster Theological Seminary, and after the publication of Camping's book, they started to get a lot of anxious questions about the validity of the claims. People in his own church became intrigued, and a few were even persuaded by his arguments that Christ was going to return in September of 1994. So this was more than just an interpretive debate at that point. It had a dramatic effect on people's lives, which theology always does. If we're off a bit on something, it can take us over time way over here instead of staying in the center stream of biblical theology. He said one person drove their credit card balances to the max and got into serious financial trouble because who cares? In a few months, Christ is coming back. True story. I don't have to worry about paying my bills. Another friend was having serious marital problems. And with this kind of escapism, his wife had left him and the children were gone. The pastor went to call on him, try to be helpful, to pray with him. And the response to this particular individual that had bought into Camping's teaching said, uh, no, I don't need to make attempts to, teach, to speak with my wife about our problems. In just a matter of a few months, Christ is coming again and my problems will disappear. They'll be gone. These are kind of horror stories. And these folks were persuaded by the 1994 teaching of Mr. Camping. And he thought he'd found the key to difficult chronological sequences by noticing the apocalyptic teaching of the Bible, including Daniel. So Longman debated Mr. Camping in May of 94, about four months before the date that Camping had put forward that Christ would return. And the place was packed. Um, it was quite a discussion that went on. And there was one quote here I wanted to share with you from the debate without sharing too much of this, but he said, Mr. Camping, in one sense I was surprised, but in another sense I was not at the fervor. He said, Mr. Camping is an example of a phenomenon that has happened again and again throughout church history. We think of like William Miller and the Adventists and different claims that have been made throughout time. He said, countless claims have been made that someone has figured out the Bible teaching of an exact time for Christ's return. One scholar's research numbered over 200 such claims in 1945 alone. So his anecdote must be taken as a critique of Mr. Camping, not alone, but of the whole enterprise of using apocalyptic as a tool for figuring out precisely when Christ is coming again. Date setting is not an appropriate contemporary use of apocalyptic literature. That was the burden of his argument. And so a misuse of apocalyptic is to set a date. It's also to live in such a manner as to think that you're absolutely certainly the last generation of mankind that will live. You may be. You may be that. But the concepts that we get from Scripture are more important with regard to apocalyptic than the dates that we think we can infer from Scripture. I think especially of the verse, no man knoweth the hour nor the day. No man would include this man and that man and that woman and that woman and all of us. We don't know the hour of the day. Mr. Camping in the 1990s represented the claim that one can use the Bible's apocalyptic chronology as a calendar to argue for a pre precise date of Christ's return. And Longman addressed that. He said, Mr. In, quoted Mark 13, 32, no man knows the hour of the day to him. 
And Mr. Camping coolly responded, I don't know the day or the hour, I know the month and the year. A statement like that, of course, is a complete misunderstanding of Jesus' intention in that verse. But it just goes to show, friends, that some of this very knowledgeable, very steeped can get off. And I think part of what drives that is an uncertainty about current affairs, um, an anxiety about trying to handle spheres of authority that's not ours to fix, a sense of obligation for things that are outside of our sphere, while sometimes shirking and neglecting and short-selling the obligations that are well within our, fear, our spheres of shepherding, like in our homes, where we're supposed to teach the gospel to our children, engage in times of family worship, and, and shape little hearts and minds for the days ahead, whatever they come. Now, that's not to say that we don't also have obligations outside of the home. We'll talk about our work today. Sometimes our work puts us squarely in the crosshairs of influential people, powerful people battling it out. And for that, like Daniel, for instance, we must seek to be faithful. Simply a comment from the onset to say in the shaping of this sermon today, based straight from Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 to 27, that when we look at prophecies in the Bible, when we look at the genre of poetry in the Bible, when we look at apocalyptic literature in the Bible that helps us to see things through symbols and images, let us look more for concept specificness than date specificness. To, to, to turn the phrase, let's look for concepts, not chronology. Certainly, we can see some things and trends, and we can even make some inferences, but we need to be very careful about a certitude, a certainty about times and dates, or even seasons. I mean, for how bad could it have been in the end not come, as you're going to see today? How bad could it have been in the end not come? If you know history, think about how bad it's been at times. Surely this means we're done, and hundreds of years more ensue. So I, I, I don't know, and I admit that I don't know, and I think that's a, that's a stable position. I don't think we should graduate beyond it. So as we read a text today in Daniel 8 that's filled with this apocalyptic imagery, I would urge you, regardless of your stated eschatological position, I would urge you to hold on to dates loosely and not to look so much for dates, but for concepts, because no man knoweth the hour nor the day. Now, with, with Daniel 8 in particular... He has a vision about animals symbolizing, animals symbolizes consecutive world powers. Zooming in more narrowly on those world powers than Daniel 7 did, which was more broadly, we zero in on a 400-year window between the end of Daniel's life. At this point, he's probably a 70-year-old man in 550 B.C., spanning to events that would, would happen about, through about 400 years later between the empires of Persia, which had yet to even come to power yet when Daniel received this vision, and then Greece. In Daniel 8, looking at these symbols and trying to mine them for concept-specific biblical data, I believe that we will see today that it is important that we overcome our lust for power, and that we understand 
our role in our lifetimes. And so the two points that I want to hang this, this sermon on today is overcoming our lust for power and understanding our role in our lifetimes. The text itself is easily broken into two parts. Verses 1 to 14 is the vision, and verses 15 to 27 is the interpretation. Though I won't really preach it that way. Because apocalyptic literature pings back and forth and back and forth, adding more information in the interpretation than was necessarily given in the story and reverbing back to the story that had more information than the interpretation and interlocking in such a way, even by nature of how we read apocalyptic, it shapes how we interpret it, how we break up the text. There are four apocalyptic visions in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel. We are now in the second one. The first and the second one came while Babylon was still ruling and while King Belshazzar was in power. And I can think of no reason to belabor this any further. Let's hear God's word from Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 to 27. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw a ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Verse 15, the interpretation of this symbolic vision. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision... I sought to understand it. 
And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand." The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And I might say he did not fully understand it. I mean, he obviously understood some things, but he didn't fully understand the scope and sequence of the vision. May God bless the reading of His Word and administer grace unto those here. I also want to say I'm, I'm deriving my revised title for this sermon from verse 27, The King's Business. The King's Business. A bit of a double meaning there. The King's Business, of which we ought all to be about, shouldn't we? Now, in this case, Daniel worked for the king. He worked for King Belshazzar. But I'm obviously talking about a greater king of a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust that the things that are needed for worthwhile living will be added unto us, to quote Matthew 6.33. And so we are to be about the king's business. And so it fits well with this sermon as I kind of unfolded in late in the week in thinking about this because what I'm asking you to do today is to overcome your lust for power because of the uncertain and to understand your role in your lives because you are to be about the king's business. Whatsoever you do, the Bible says, you are to do as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. So whatever you set your hands to this week, whatever it is, see that it pleases the Lord and that you do it in a manner that pleases the Lord. For this is the duty of every Christian, empowered by the Spirit, of course. God the Spirit empowers all that you do, and you do it for Him, even as you do it by Him. So you're about the king's business, to quote Daniel 8, 27. We, like Daniel, have prophecies that help us see future things. But we don't have a date specificness for each of those future things. Instead, we have a concept specificness. This is an important point. 
God did show some dates to Daniel, seemingly in a kind of liberal manner that he does not show us in the revelation that we have in Scripture in light of the New Covenant about the second coming of Christ. In fact, I think this text says little about the second coming of Christ directly, and I think it's speaking of a confined period of about 400 years from the end of Daniel's life to the end of the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. So, what can we glean from such a confined and constricted period of time since we do not know what our confined and constricted period of time is to be? Well, this requires much patience. Requires thought. Requires wrestling. Look at chapter 8, verse 3, for example. Chapter 8, verse 3. It says that Daniel raised his eyes, and he saw, behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. And it says it had two horns. Emphasize the word horns. Both horns were high. One was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, we get interpretation from this from the second half of this chapter because it talks about the Medes and the Persians. And the Persians actually looked bigger, but they didn't wind up being bigger. And the Persians conquered the Medes. And often the empire is referred to as the Medo-Persian Empire. But we've shortened it because the Persians were more powerful. And so when we say Babylon falls, we say they fell to Persia. We don't say they fell to the Medes. So that's what took place there, just a soundbite of world history. It is world history. Atheists and agnostics would not dispute the history of Babylon falling to Persia any more than they would dispute the history of Persia falling to Greece and so on. We share a basic understanding of history. It's just that we see God in control of history bringing it to a consummate end. Whereas atheists and agnostics very often see chaos, unruliness, every man for himself, and a lack of purposefulness to how history unfolds. Like Ezekiel, Daniel 8 locates Daniel carried in a vision to a retreat center of a future power like Persia. He's sitting in Susa Elam at a canal that's no longer there today. He sees a ram on the bank of the canal, a ram with horns, verses 3 and 4, and then a goat wins, but that goat's kingdom was divided into four obvious horns, verses 5 to 8, and one of the four rules ravenously, ragingly, in the region of the glorious land, in verse 9, a region that includes the place of God's people at that time, Israel, verses 9 to 14, and all of this gets angelic interpretation to help us think through what will happen between Daniel and the time of the end of this prophetic epoch. Largely, Israel's sacrificial system of worship under the Mosaic Covenant, it would be stopped and stymied and would largely come to an end after a renovatus, a renovation of it, a rejuvenation of it in the time of the Maccabees at the end of what the time period that Daniel's talking about, 164 B.C. And the stage would then be set for the epoch of the New Covenant in Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises, all together with the birth of Christ a half century later after Antiochus Epiphanes' death. 
Now, if that chronology is not seared in your mind yet, we're going to go back through it two or three times probably in this sermon. But that is what I believe we're talking about in Daniel chapter 8. The transition of power from Persia to Greece, particularly under the leadership of Grecian ruler Alexander the Great, who took the, the kingdom from Greece all the way to India, about a million and a half square miles, and a kingdom that would then be divided into four by geography, and then the eighth ruler of one of those four under-rulers, generals that took power, of the Seleucids would be Antiochus Epiphanes. And the prophecy, we think, is talking about this figure that would ravage God's people 400 years after Daniel saw the prophecy. So you can imagine, now, and I told you we'd jump beginning to end and back and forth through this, you can imagine why Daniel doesn't really understand, right? I mean, it's easy for us to look back with a kind of chronological snobbery and be like, well, he should have figured that out. That's that's easy now. Uh, Just like it'd be easy for somebody, should the Lord tarry in his return 400 years, to look back here and say, well, blank, blank, blank about those guys then, right? I mean, just rattle off something like, I mean, what kind of snobbery is that? To live in that moment, what Daniel is getting as an old man who can do relatively little about it. I mean, it's not like he's going to call some kind of a prophecy conference and get people to follow his name because he's seeing off into 400 years. None of that's going to happen with Daniel here. He's an old man. He's conscripted to service. He's working for King Belshazzar, a wicked king by all accounts. And he gets this vision of things to come. What's he going to do with it? Well, he writes it down. I mean, you've got it, right? He writes it down. Uh, But what's he to do? It can't be a self-serving kind of thing. In fact, it's anything but that. He can't fully understand. I mean, I don't think he could spell Antiochus Epiphanes in 550 B.C. when he gets his vision. I don't think that's what's going on. Even though we can look back and say, that fits that pretty good. I don't, think he, I don't think that was the nature of the prophecy for him in that time. He was not supposed to be able to say, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That's not what was going on. Furthermore, it's not only that he understood things that we would understand more, but he didn't fully understand, like 827 says. It's also that he couldn't use it to somehow amass a following, and a greater influence than he already had. Uh, uh, he couldn't use the text of Scripture, if we want to use that language now. We have it here. He couldn't use the visions from God, the revelation. He couldn't use the Bible to amass a greater following. It was bone-crushing. The responsibility lay him asleep for days before he went back to the king's business, to his job. The, the text ends, there's so much in that last verse that helps us sort of frame the entirety of the 26 verses before it, just like the same thing happens at the end of Daniel 7, by the way, as we saw. That there's a lot of freight that gets carried by that very last verse because you see the condition of Daniel in his physical and his emotional, his mental, sort of summed up at the very end of that, of the end of that, of the chapter, the last verse of the chapter. Just to refresh, it says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. It's really a lot there. A lot there. What I'm asking you to wrestle with firstly and then secondly, as I've said, but firstly, is the concept of power and our lust for it and our need to overcome our lust for power in this life. It's not to say that you shouldn't achieve, not to say you shouldn't strive. I've already said you should get up and go to work. Daniel finally did after he got over being sick and tired. 
It's not that I'm, this, I'm not, none of that am I advocating. I've advocated it within the book of Daniel for a thorough education. Daniel 1 sort of illuminates the virtues of that. None of that am I saying is bad. I'm simply saying a kind of lust for power to fix this world order is misguided. For the very simple fact that if God wants to use you to fix something in the order of things right now, He'll do it. It's your call to be faithful to the little flock that you've got, to the job that you've got, to seek to understand the scripture that you've got, and then to take the next best step in front of you that you've got. That's called faithfulness. One commentator called faithfulness a long obedience in the same direction. We're looking at a patient, long obedience in the same direction, come what may. Power is intoxicating. This text is about power. It's illustrated by horns, or as we called them in the foothills of southeast Missouri where I grew up, Antlers. I mean, antlers are nothing more than horns that fall off every year. Do you know about this, or am I completely irrelevant now that I've moved up north a little bit? <laughs> At the expense of you misunderstanding, deer hunting was a rite of passage in my hometown in southeast Missouri. In fact, we took an entire Friday off of school, the opening day of deer season. This was an approved absence, kids. If you're under 17, I want you to listen to me. This was an approved absence for every boy and girl the opening day of deer season. And your absence from studies, you didn't have to study that day, it did not count against you. Hunter's orange and camouflage were in high demand. The stores were virtually sold out of them. Deer stands had been erected in the weeks prior. Grunt calls were perfected. White-tailed deer were the target, and every hunter dreamed of landing that trophy buck. In fact, we'd talk about it in the months ahead. We would eat deer tenderloin when the guys got together around Christmas time to do whatever the guys did, watch the Super Bowl in January, whatever the case may be. Every boy cleaned guns with their dad when he was between 5 and 10 years old. I remember getting a small single-shot 410 shotgun when I turned 10. Hunter's safety was a huge emphasis, huge emphasis where I grew up. Dads taught it to their children. I remember setting through hours of hunter safety courses, so I guess I kind of earned that skip the study day on that Friday, didn't I? All of us did. Hours of hunter safety courses and having to pass a test, so I was certified in how to handle a firearm in a manner that would not hurt myself or someone else. And much of this culminated in deer hunting or deer camp if you went to it or whatever the case may be on those first days of deer season. So I understand, and now you do too, that antlers or horns are a symbol of strength. Sometimes in the woods you would see evidence of deer having done battle for territory or honor. And you would see, you, you can, perhaps can even hear this. You can go on and listen to deer battles where they, they, they clank and they make this noise. And sometimes one of the sets of horns gets deformed. They break and you'll have a broken antler. So there's this discussion about the number of points on a, on a big buck if you were to, to kill one. Because sometimes the horns either grow disconfiguredly or are broken disconfiguredly because they got them hung in something. Or they were in some sort of a battle. The imagery told a story. And, and our imagery here in this text tells a story today, too. Horns symbolize power, 
Length of horns, shaping of horns. That's what you're meant to grasp when you look at Daniel 8 and other texts like it. It's really just that simple. The horns of an animal, the ESV study Bible says, are used for defensive and offensive fighting. They're frequently found in Scripture as a symbol of the military power of a nation. So in this case, the, the horn of the Persians proved greater than the, the power, the horns, or the horn rather, of the Medes. The horn of the Persians proved greater than the, the horn of the Medes. And then we'll find that the horn of the, of the goat proved greater, that is, Greece, than the Persians later. It's the nature of power, talked about by referencing horns here. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. It's an interesting verse. It said, I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. It is he pleased. It became great. Think about that for a second. Uh, no one could rescue him from his power. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 3 where Daniel's friends found out and told that God could rescue them from a fiery furnace? Do you remember in Daniel chapter 6 where God rescues Daniel from a den full of predatorial lions? It says here in 8.4 that this, this power, this ram, it says that he did what he pleased and he became great. He was successful. I mean, it's easy to just look back and say successful, successful, unsuccessful, successful, successful, unsuccessful, unsuccessful, unsuccessful. But they lived in this time, like we live in our time. They were beleaguered, in some ways like we're beleaguered, embattled, bitter, embroiled. Pick your favorite descriptive word. They lived in consternation. And they, like us, well, we're tempted to envy the successful, aren't we? You know, jealousy and envy in the Bible are akin. Jealousy can be divine, not envy. Envy is sinful. Akin to breaking the commandment not to covet. I suppose envy, in brief, is just to want something, somebody else, so bad that it affects your behavior. Perhaps even you're willing to commit ills in order to attain what someone else has. I wonder if you're governed by unstated envy today. I wonder if the successes of some unrighteous person bugs you to the point that you can hardly focus on anything else. I wonder if the successes of a relatively righteous person bugs you to the point that you can't hardly focus on anything else. I mean, it's good to, to appreciate a brother or sister in the church, a woman, to look to a, a wiser woman in the church, someone that's further along, a man, likewise, look to a, a man that's further along in the faith. This is good. It's good to want to be like them. It's, it's not good to try to bring them down to size so that you feel better about yourself. It 
It's not good to hide rather than to request discipling from that person. Would it be better to follow the great commandment even right here at home and be disciples of this nation through being discipled in your church, through swallowing your pride and laying aside your sin of envy and saying, I think that person can probably help me grow in the faith I'm going to ask to be discipled or mentored or whatever words you want to use. Proverbs says, better a little with peace than a lot with strife. Success is no litmus test for faithfulness. Either way, either way. If you're a successful person, I'm proud of you. I'm thankful for you. If you've had relative unsuccess, you're in good company. Jeremiah was miserable. I'm just simply saying, you need to put power in its proper perspective because this text is giving no nod to the power brokers of the day. Overcome your want of power. And secondly, in our sermon, I'm going to talk briefly about Overcoming your want of power through understanding your role in this lifespan, in this present time. It's like I said, looking back, it's easy to give a thumbnail sketch. But you live in the middle of it all. So what does this text say to us in the now? Concept of understanding, of reasoning, of thinking through covenantal, epochal time frames. The epoch of the new covenant in which we live understanding our, even our worship, how we're to behave, understanding. I mean, this is a key word. If you were just let your eyes glance through the, the verses on the page, if you have a print Bible, you might just look through and kind of highlight all the times the word understanding or understand appears in the text. Verse, verse 15, I sought to understand. Verse 17, understand, O son of man. If you scroll all the way down to verse 27, I did not understand it. Understanding is the pursuit of the Christian life. We are seeking to understand. It's been said commonly that good communication is seeking first to understand, then to be understood. To communicate in a manner that I'm wanting to understand what you have to say before I'm trying to get you to understand what I have to say. Well, that's a part of maturity. When we go to the Bible, we always need to go through the lens that the Bible is bringing more to us than we're bringing to the Bible. There's a cavalierness, a kind of cleverness that people with capacity bring to the Bible that circumvents the very process of the pursuit that they claim to be engaging Our role is to be a humble learner. Does it come to Christ and then come to Him again and again, asking for help as we look to His Word? Asking for guidance in interpreting the Word so that we can then make application from the Word. 
And one of those great applications is worship. It's worship. The Bible says that we are to neglect not the habit of meeting together. That we shouldn't neglect the habit of meeting together. Hebrews 10.25 says this. That could be a tough one, can't it? It could be a tough one until it's taken away from us. Oh, I'll get there next week. I'll gather with the saints next week. I'll catch it later online. Maybe later comes, maybe it doesn't. Well, what is Hebrews talking about when it says not to neglect the habit of meeting together unless it's talking about meeting together that is a habit? What is a habit? A habit is doing something over and over and over and over again. Perhaps you eat breakfast. It is a habit. You do not neglect the habit of eating breakfast. You fill in the blank. To miss it is to miss something. I'm hungry. That's the imagery for us here. It's a habit. So if gathering hasn't been a habit, I thank God you're here. Let's make it a habit this year. Because it's a direct command of our Lord that we have a habit of meeting together. And then once we have a habit, we have to understand the temptation because of the wiles of the evil one is to neglect that habit once it's formed, to kind of get away from gathering with the saints. I want to tell you what a privilege it is to gather. What a privilege it is to worship based on the new covenant in Christ's blood. What a privilege it is to gather around the Lord's table and take the supper. What a privilege it is to feast on God's word together. What grace we have to meet together and glean from and receive from these ordinary means of grace. You know, for God's people, in this time frame in which we're talking, actually within the prophecy, toward the end of the 400 years, they learned a real hard lesson about the value of the basic freedom to worship according to God's plan. Look at uh, verse... Eleven. I mean ten. In that sequence of Babylon falling to Persia, which had conquered the Medes, and then Alexander the Great of Greece conquering Persians, and Alexander, he died a young man, 32 years old, probably of malaria, leaving the kingdom to four generals, actually left it to his sons who were murdered, and then there was four generals, and then eight generations down the line comes one of those four generals is the ruler underneath that particular subset of the, of the empire, and that was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which I've already mentioned. So we look at verse 10, we're hearing about it. And it, it talks about the loss of freedom of worship for these people. And it says in verse 10, It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. 
and a host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Trample on the truth. Then if you let your eyes glance down on the page, and you look at the interpretation side of it, they don't take much time at all getting right to this main point of this history, which is the end of the 400 years. Far off, that Daniel couldn't even say Antiochus Epiphanes, but here, this is the, kind of the, the point. It's, it's no wonder he was overwhelmed and bedridden for a couple days. It says, uh, look at verse 20. It says, As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, and the horn that was broken in the place of the four others arose. Four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, now, now we're getting to the end of it, to, this is the point, getting to Antiochus Epiphanes, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, intimating a wickedness behind him, I think. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. I mean, Daniel thinks we've had so much persecution, can't it go away? And he's looking at a time it's going to be even worse. Verse 25, By that king Antiochus Epiphanes is cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. Deceit prosper under his hand. That's demonic. And in his own mind he shall become great. He's, a, he's a, a, a maniac in his, in his uh, self-adulation, his self-glory. Self and it says there in verse 25, Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. That's a refrain in Daniel. Essentially God's going to take care of him. No man did. And verse 26 talks about the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told that they're true and to seal them up. It's for many days from now, and Daniel's but just, just all of that stuff. But, but the, the long and the short of this is, is that from 167 B.C. to 164 B.C., you have a period probably of about three and a half years, based on what's being talked about here, that Daniel couldn't fully comprehend a couple of empires prior by which God's people back home in the land would have their worship utterly defiled by a wicked tyrant ruler. And we don't have time to get into this too much other than he, he trampled on the scriptures, the truth. He, he sacrificed a pig on the altar, worshipped Zeus. Terrible stuff. Stuff that would have been an absolute abomination to any religiously, historically minded Jewish person. And thousands upon thousands were killed. He was trying to Hellenize. He was trying to turn the Jewish people not only into subjects of a, of a Greek kingdom, but he was trying to turn them into worshipers of the pagan pantheon. And he saw himself, hence the title Epiphanes, he saw himself as a mediary between God and men and women. He had set himself up as a type of the Antichrist, to be sure. If the label Antichristos doesn't apply to this man, I don't know who it could apply to. And the time was awful. It was bad. And there were, were lots of reasons to be bothered by the state of affairs in 167654 B.C., and there is an intertestamental book in the, that's not in the Bible, that's in history, 
that tells the story of Judas Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt and driving them back to Syria and the recovery of proper worship. Just 50, 60 years prior to the birth of Christ. What I want you to think about here within all of this is not taking God-ordained worship for granted. It seems like a simple enough point. But one of the things that happens when we get back on our heels, we get comfortable and content, things don't seem as bad as they once did, we move from our lust for fixing everything to a kind of complacency that really doesn't value the ordinary means of grace. If our first point was a predominant problem for young people, not exclusively, we've got some power lustful old people too in our, in our society for sure, but if the first point is primarily for young people, then our second problem is primarily for those of us more up in age. A kind of complacency that sees this as an elective sort of thing. Maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't. God knows my heart. I can worship just the same in my living room as I can there. The problem with that is the Bible. That is a man-made religious philosophy that's not biblical. I'm not talking about when you're sick. I'm not talking about the shut-ins that we should visit, pray for. I'm, tough case makes bad rule, okay? Tough cases aside, we should be together. We should be together. Now, if that rubs you and me, it needs to because that's what the text says. And there's no real power to be gained from that admonition. What we're doing here, it's bigger than any one of us. The children, they need to grow up to know songs of the faith. Your grandchildren, if you don't have children, grandchildren, your adopted nieces and nephews, people here, they need to grow up. A lot of people are visitors to the church, and if you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here, glad you're, all that kind of stuff. But they'll catch me after, man, you got a bunch of kids in this church. There's lots of little kids. And I say, yes, yes we praise God for our little kids. But I'm going to tell you something. If one little kid's missing, it's one too many. This isn't for attaboys. I want 100% participation of your little kids learning the things of God. I want them here receiving, every one of them. And I want all the churches that preach this same gospel to have all their kids in them too. This was an awful thing that took place, the, the robbing of worship, the, the religious aberration that took place under the rulership of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he came to a swift end, history shows. Judas Maccabeus rededicated the temple on December the 14th, 164 B.C. Today the Jews celebrate Feast of Hanukkah, or dedication to commemorate this momentous event. And you know, our New Testament references that feast. 
the Feast of Dedication. I'd like to reference in the New Testament today and even read to you a text from John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. It says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Talk about a God that's able to rescue, right? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him about the ability to be religious and miss the forest for the trees, right? We need to be careful and be humble-minded when we go to the text that we don't wind up just like them. Religious, but void of true religion. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The toughness there, right? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to take to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. What a glorious statement in verse 42 of John 10. And many believed in him there. That's what I call you to this morning. Jesus leveraged the Feast of Dedication to tell of himself, not because he was filled with arrogant pride, but because he came as the hope of the world. He's overcome the world. Children, listen to me. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Not in what you will accomplish in this world, though I pray you accomplish much. Not in your superior understanding though I hope that you come to understand lots of things about the Bible and God's way in the world. But put your faith in Christ because that's enough. Be amongst the many unschooled, ordinary boys and girls and men and women in the first century that came to believe in Jesus because of the signs that were done and are told about in our Bible and because of the prophecies like John that said this is the one. He fulfills every promise of Scripture Every promise has its yes in Jesus Christ, and you can trust Him. Listen to me, senior citizens. Same as I talk to children, I talk to you. 
And I say to you, you're about to see the other side, and you will not spend eternity with a Christ that you don't care about now. Care about Christ now. Put your faith in Christ now. You will not see eternity with Christ because you were basically a pretty good old boy or a fairly good lady. The only way you will see eternity with Christ is having been born again by receiving Him. Have you not done that? Today is the day of salvation. You will not be able to say to God on your day of judgment, I didn't know, for you've been told. God has made a way for you to have eternal life. It's the free gift of Christ. Salvation is not assumed, but it is freely offered, and you should simply receive it. Now I say to you about this free gift, if you're somewhere in between the eldest and the youngest, I say to you, no more than we know the hour of the day of Christ's return, do you know the day of your death. You do not know when you will stand before God Most High. It could come just like that. And I say to you today that your only hope is found in Jesus the Christ. He did not focus on Hanukkah. He focused on himself and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. Put your faith in him. This is not gobbledygook. It is not myths. It's truth. The apostles said so. The prophets foretold it. And I preach it to you today as someone who has simply received, as imperfect as I am, I've simply received Christ. I call you to it too, to the praise of His glory. Let's take about a half a minute and think about these things before we pray together.